Please note, this podcast contains discussions related to death and suicide. These topics, narratives, insights and discussions may be distressing or triggering for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, I'm Dr Maddie Cassidy and I was a state pathologist in Ireland from 2004 to 2018. Welcome to my podcast, Life in Death, brought to you by GoLoud. I'll be taking you through the world of pathology and forensics, digging deep into the roles of experts in crime, from the crime scene to the law courts. In today's episode, we'll be talking to Senior Counsel Michael Higgins. Normally, I'm the one who's being interrogated by Senior Counsel, but today the tables are turned as I get to ask the questions. As a forensic pathologist, I'm no stranger to the court system. And um, even after 30 years, it's often with trepidation that I climb those steps into the witness box. But guess what? Today the tables are turned and I'm getting the chance to ask the questions. Welcome to Michael O'Higgins, Senior Counsel. I've come across him on many an occasion. Usually we're on opposing sides, <laughs> although we're supposed to be on the same side on occasion. And um, he's going to come and join me today and talk a little bit about um, becoming a barrister, being a barrister and what he sees in the future. So welcome to you, Michael. Good morning, Mary. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you very much. The question I'm always asked is, um, how did I come into to medicine? What, you know, and why did I become a, a doctor? And knowing your background, um, it wasn't you didn't come straight into law. You had a little foray into journalism. I understand when you were young and carefree, and um, perhaps a bit like most of us, hadn't a clue what you were going to do with your life. Um, can you maybe tell us a bit about when you were leaving school, what you thought you were going to do with your life, and how how you managed to get into either thinking about going into law or how you managed to fall into it, a bit like myself, just falling through a door and thinking, oh, well, we're here now, we might as well go on with it. Well, I, I have to say uh, I had a very romantic view of, of things when I left school. Uh, I was um, very idealistic, I think, uh, in a way that I w- wouldn't see in my own children, for instance. And I had very naive uh, ideas about things. Um, They were like all school leavers, they were all untested ideas. Um, But I wanted to to be a journalist. I wanted to be what was then called an investigative journalist. And I wanted to be a lawyer because uh, I had all sorts of ideas about great injustices that were out there. And uh, I also wanted to, to sort of write fiction. Those, those are the three things I wanted to do. And uh, yeah. with a sort of a steely, grim Scottish determination, I put my head down and did all three of them. And uh, I, I, I worked very hard at them, but I was very interested in them. I was very fascinated by them. And uh, the 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 reality was very very different to what what I had envisaged, what was in my head. And you know, I do love the law. I also do not love the law on occasions. But I mean, I, there are aspects of what I do that I like a lot. Uh, a, a day is like five minutes, but 
there are also aspects of it I don't like. And, you know, it's very stressful and there's a lot of responsibility and you, you carry it around and you're a time off and all that sort of thing. And I'm still, you know, very exercised about justice. But in, 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 the, in my younger days, justice was, you know, someone was being, someone who was innocent was being convicted uh, or, or, you know, somebody who, mm. who was politically or otherwise unpopular was being pursued in a way they were being persecuted. And these were all very black and white concepts, whereas the justice, I now realize, it lies in the gray. And very often, you know, you are fighting a case, you are making an argument, and the particular individual objectively might be very undeserving of the benefit of that argument, but it has a wider application and it, it make, keeps the system right and it keeps things fair. So sometimes, you know, the individual case uh, would be would be fought very hard on some particular point, but a person looking in would say, the person who got the benefit of that was very undeserving, but where's the justice of that? Mm. So it's uh, the whole thing was very evolving, that's how I would put it. Where, where did you study law? I studied a BA in UCD, a very general BA, in English and history. Mm. Uh, my father, who was a very mild-mannered man, uh, outwardly at least, when I said I wanted, I was going to do a BA in English and history and then I was going to do law and he nearly exploded and said, who's going to pay for this? But uh, I, I scraped a BA uh, uh, and, and uh, then I headed off to Amsterdam for a couple of years. And then I came back and I uh, started law at night, did the diploma in the inns and uh, then onto the degree class as a four-year night thing. It was a great class, actually. It was a fantastic mix of people. There were A lot of them were mature students and a lot of them were doing it for work purposes. They were never actually going to come down and practice, but it, it, it was a great, it was a good course. It was a good class. And I qualified in uh, when I was 27. I was at that stage working in McGill magazine and I stayed, that was, a, that was like a, an amazing place to work. And I stayed another year at that. So I was 28 coming in. And was it always going to be going into being a barrister rather than a lawyer solicitor? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as I say, I had all these very romantic notions of things and, you know, I'd watched all the movies. Uh, I was totally entranced by it. And, <laughs> you know, my favorite movie, and I watch it every five or 10 years or so. Uh, it's probably due another watch now, but the unusual thing about it is most movies date terribly uh, over time. But my favorite law movie is a movie called Justice for All by Al Pacino. And it's one of those movies, it's, you know, the, the standard Hollywood movie is, you know, the DA is prosecuting the paedophile or defending some innocent from the gas chamber. Yeah. But what, what I like about Justice for All is it captures all the grayness and the ambivalence. And it's a wonderful film. I was very much uh, affected and, and tied up with, the, as I say, the very romantic notions of it. But I think... Um, I, I think I'm a wee bit older than you, I'll admit that. Um, but I think we came through a system where um, 
we didn't we weren't exposed to what youngsters are exposed to now we we only knew of medicine and law what we saw in films if we had somebody in the family who knew a bit about it you maybe had some kind of a flavor of it but i mean i don't know what your background was i came from a quite a working class background so we had no notion i mean the doctor to me was the gp that i went to see when i had a sore throat going into hospital was when my auntie was having a you know heart surgery and that was a man walking about with a white coat and a stethoscope and i thought Oh, that looks that that looks very very good. You don't seem to do very much. You just wander about and go, Good morning, Mrs. So and so and how are we today? And I think maybe with law, um I don't know what your background is. Did you have anybody in the family who was in law doing anything? Well yeah, yes, yes and no. Um I my my parent there were seven of us and my parents came from Northern Ireland and my father was in the Air Corps mm. and they believe very passionately in education. So we were pushed to university, but the height of aspiration would have been a BA and a teacher. Mm. I mean, right. they would have regarded that as, uh, you know, the mantle to the next generation. You'd improve things and, you know, law and medicine, they were never in it. And then I had a brother, you know, who was kind of a bit flash and he became a barrister and uh, he did very well and continues to do very well, I should say. Uh, but so I did have uh, I did have that family connection. But when I went down to uh, get advice from him, he he told me in the strongest possible terms that I should not consider it under any circumstances. And if I really wanted to do law, I should go and become a solicitor. But there was never any danger of me following that advice. Um, we lived in a, a very large housing estate. Um, uh, there was the, the you know people played sort of football on the green um you know you go into the law library the peer group that you're meeting you know there's a big core of them are privately educated and uh, the four or five schools and they walk around like they own the place and the world and you know when you come in there this is even your own peer group never mind the ones that are you know, five, 10, 15 years ahead of you. And they all seemed to be incredibly confident about things. And they pronounced on sort of issues emphatically, which even today I would be hesitant about that level of certainty. And I found all that quite intimidating, but the bar was getting a bit egalitarian. You know, there was, there was rushes of guards, army officers, journalists, they came in waves and uh, the, bar grew from 300 to nearly 3,000 in the space of about 15 years. So I, it's, I'm not saying it's still, it's, it's egalitarian, it's obviously it's not, but the blood is a bit, bit, bit more diluted now, I think. Yeah, I think that was that was happening in the kind of a late 80s into the early 90s. There was a change because I saw it even in medicine. Coming into medicine, um, it was very much, you know, um, well, this is a family business, you know, this is what we all do. And there was a, you know, sort of a, a small core of us coming from, you know, you know, your mother worked as an insurance agent, your father, you know, worked in the butchers and things like that. And we all stuck together for a long time. And then, you know, sort of very timidly would make forays into joining little groups of people. Um, and at the end of the day, everybody's doing the same and trying to get through it in the same way. But as you say, you always feel as if you're in the back foot a little bit when you're coming from, not coming from that sort of esteemed background and family. So, yes, I, I felt the same myself in the way going through. And a bit like yourself, your brother saying to you to go and be a solicitor. That's like saying to me, wanting to be a forensic pathologist, go and be a GP. And I'd go, oh, my God, no. 
<laughs> Never in a million years. I'd rather go out and work in Marks and Spencers rather than go back and do something like that. So I can understand that. When you decided you set out, you set out to become a barrister, and it's not an easy thing to do because people think about barristers as being these wealthy people who live <laughs> in leafy suburbs in these big Victorian mansions and have idyllic lives. But unfortunately, to start off, it's, <laughs> it bears no relation to that at all, and you you don't earn a lot of money in the first few years, do you? No, it, now I, I, I used to my time was sort of five years to get us get what would have been a salary. It's now seven and rising, Oof. and it's grim. I mean, I was fortunate. I had worked as a journalist for Fart Press magazine and then for McGill, and it meant that when I went in, uh, RTE gave me uh, shifts in the newsroom. There were night shifts from eleven at night to seven in the morning, and I did it every Friday to Sunday. They were really kind to me. During the holidays, they let me write my own roster. And I couldn't have done it without that. There's no, 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 it just would have been impossible. Um, but it was hard going, not, not, not on the individual night, but cumulatively it mounted up. And I remember after four years, I, I stopped, uh, I stopped it because it was just doing my head in, quite frankly. And after six months, I had to ring up to get the shifts back. And that was a very low moment. You know, I was 32 at that stage. Uh, uh, you know, it was getting a bit embarrassing. You know, there was a little slogan at the time, you know, if you're travelling on public transport when you're 30, you're a failure. <laughs> and uh, I certainly wasn't getting anyone here driving a car at that stage. And uh, I, I got the shifts back for another six months and I, I stopped then. And I won't say I never looked back, but I had, had enough of arrears that were due that I was able to to survive on it. And, and then, you know, you get to a certain point, you have a practice, and then it grows. And, you know, on paper, financially, it all looks wonderful, but you end up just borrowing money, and it's just another way of keeping you working the same way everyone else is working. Everyone thinks someone else is ahead of them as it's sussed <laughs> out. They don't. That's capitalism. I know. That's true. That's true. Did you ever think of selling out and going into the DPP's office? Uh, no, but not not because it would be selling out. Uh, I, 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 it, it wouldn't. It just wouldn't appeal to me. I mean, the bar. It's a really strange place, you know. It's it's, it's you know. I remember the first day I walked into the law library, uh, Paddy Gageby, who you know, even yeah. then was a bit of an icon. He, he'd lectured me in criminal law. And he, he walked up to me and he shook my hand and uh, he said, welcome to the establishment. Get yourself a waistcoat. <laughs> that was the first person I met. And it is an incredibly conservative, but it's also a very tolerant place. And uh, it's a sort of place who certain type of person thrives who would never be a useful employee elsewhere. And sort of eccentricity. There's a higher, there's a higher tolerance for all that stuff. <laughs> and when you're working for someone, you know, they can turn around and say, "Why weren't you here at eight thirty this morning?" You're working for yourself. Uh, so there's, there's, there's none of that. And while it's harder in lots of ways, it's, it's one of the really attractive qualities about it. Um, I would to go into an office and do a nine to five thing. Of course, I could do it if I had to do it, and I'd hopefully do it with good grace. But I like I like the slightly anarchic nature of our setup. Yeah, there's a there's a certain freedom about it, isn't there? Yeah, 
I can understand that. Yeah, there is. It, it's extraordinary. I mean, yeah. it's not the way, like all generations looking back, you know, it's getting, it seems now to be getting a bit more formalized, a bit more like a regular job and all that. And it's, it's harder. And the cruel thing about the bar is that I think that in most jobs, if you go in and you put in the extra time and, you know, providing you don't offend anyone, you know, you're going to arise. You're going to get a, a dividend for that. But there are a lot of bright people who work really hard. Their work is good and they, they just don't get through the gate. And then there are other people who who are far less uh, ability and some of them, you know, thrive and they get very big practices normally because they're very personable. That travels a long way in our business, uh, but it's not it's not a meritocracy. And of course, you know, when I came in, it's not as prevalent now. But you know, there were the families. If you if you if you knew the solicitors, if it was all if they were all in the same golf club, if they were all the same sameness, people got established much more quickly. You know, that was there, and that's still here. I'm sure. So it was always going to be the defence for you. You were always going to work for the underdog. Well, that was where I was naturally drawn. Yeah, that was, that was all part of the, you know, the romantic picture. That's where I wanted to go. Uh, I, I do prosecute cases. And, you know, at a middle stage of my career, I used to prosecute a reasonable amount. I would say, you know, 20, 20, 20% of my practice. It's a lot less now. Uh, I, I, I would... You know, it's good. It's first of all, it's very good to do both sides because you get a perspective. And what you learn about a, a lawyer makes arguments. And if you want to win, if you're the sort of person who needs to win things, um, I don't think being a lawyer is, is where it's at. Because when you're arguing on popular causes, first of all, you know, you're going to go through long periods of being unsuccessful in the arguments and you've got to train yourself to remember it's the argument which is your skill it's the argument which you're making not winning it you know you have to you have to parse and analyze the argument you have to satisfy yourself professionally it's an appropriate argument to make that it's statable but if it reaches those criteria you go in and you argue it but you can't get too hung up on 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 winning you know that's very unhealthy so, yeah, I, I, I am naturally attracted, I think, to, to the underdog. But what I would say is, I mean, as I say, I had this notion of, you know, goodies and baddies, and it was very, it was very simplistic. I mean, the guards, I have a lot of interaction with them over the years, and I, and I like a lot of them, and I like a lot of their attitude, and a lot of them are very decent people. But you have a professional interaction with them, and you learn, you learn through your through your interacting with a lot of these people that your preconceptions are very wrong in a lot of cases, and uh, that's all that's all part of the adjustment process. And if you go into something that's very intense, and you go into something that there's a lot of interaction, it's up to you to learn as you go along, and your your preconceptions change. And you know, I like a lot of the people that I work around. Even the ones I don't like, I respect a lot of them. Uh, there are, there are, of course, other people who I neither like nor respect. But that, that's part of the process too. And how do you get a case? How does somebody find themselves a barrister? 
Well, the the public would wouldn't have much uh, interaction on that level. It's all solicitors, and you know the traditional route is you go in and you devil, and you do that for a year, and at the end then you're you're sort of hanging out and you're waiting for solicitors to sort of uh, you know the cases that they would scrape out of the rubbish bin. Uh, they give you these things, and eventually, if you do a few of them, there's a a moral obligation to give you something more substantial and as you go along you just hope and pray that you don't mess it up uh, in your early years uh, you're very conscious of that and it's a slow building process and i think um, there's no prototype there are different barristers or different approaches you know there are people who walk out of there and never think about a case when they come back in and it's part of their strength then there are other people, you know, I'm one of the best walk dogs in Ireland. And yeah, you know, I get up every morning and I walk the dog for an hour and my head is sort of churning out what's coming up. So I, I'd be one of the people, I won't say I take the work home because I love my holidays and I take my holidays and I really enjoy them. But you, 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 I think it's one of these things, if you want to get the best performance out of yourself, you have to really, really, you have to really put in the time. There's no shortcuts. And does the, the solicitor that approaches you, do they come to you with all of the information and just sort of dump it on your desk and say, well, there you go, Michael, you know, good luck and walk out. And you then have to sort of formulate a plan of, through all of this and try and work out what's relevant, what's not relevant. Or so... Or do you, or do they come to you with already with a very fixed idea of where they're going, or do they take heed of you where you think this should be going and what other information they need? How do, how does that work? How does this all all, all of those union... things? I mean, there is a great as as there is at the bar. There's a great uh, there's a great spread of solicitors. I mean, the really good ones, they'll have the case organised. You know, they'll have analysed what the case is. They'll have They'll have taken a few steps to see what the answer to it is. And they'll come to counsel and they'll say, what else do we need to do here? Um, some of the solicitors work phenomenally hard. I mean, part of the part of the uh, big problem we have at the moment is there's a huge amount of disclosed material, which is unused in the guard investigation, CCTV and the likes. And, you know, sometimes there'll be six, you know, three months of CCTV. It's not possible to look at all of it. But some solicitors are really good. They'll have gone through the CCTV. They'll be able to tell you exactly what the points are. Um, at the other end, there are solicitors who hand you the papers, and effectively you're on your own after that. Uh, and then there's a middle ground where you know solicitors are busy and they're doing their best, the same way barristers are busy and doing their best. I mean, ideally, when a barrister gets a brief, he should read it and he should write what's known an advice on proofs setting out, here's all the issues, here's everything we have to do, and off it goes in the post. And I'm sure there, there are barristers who do all that in the first week of receiving papers, but for others, they're, they're not that well organised, I'd include myself in that. And, you know, it would be very much a, 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 a dialogue where people get around the table and we talk about it and we work out what the things are and all the rest of it. But, you know, the, the case that's getting the love is the one that's on tomorrow. And, you know, the case that's getting the least is the one that finished yesterday. 
until the appeal comes. But once the case is looming and people are in the in the zone, I mean, you know, solicitors generally brief barristers that they you know mirror their own thing, and barristers gravitate to solicitors who are the same. So. I get a lot of quite a few solicitors who really work the cases really hard, but they expect their barristers to do that as well, which is fine. It's all at the end of the case, everyone will sleep well because we'll all feel well. There was no stone unturned. So, the, to working with the good solicitors is 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 a real privilege and a real pleasure. Yeah, I mean, I find as a forensic pathologist. I mean, most of the work I do is for the well, it's not for the prosecution, but I tend to to end up kind of bracketed in that side of it and I I really enjoy when I'm doing a case for the defence because from that very point of view that they just do just dump everything on me and say well have a look through it and see if there's anything relevant to the case from the pathology side of things whereas in the the system at the moment you're just getting fed what people think is relevant to the case and you don't ever get the wider picture. And I find it quite fascinating sometimes reading through and, you know, the um, witness interviews and various things, which I would never usually get access to. And I find, I find that incredibly fascinating, the things that people say and the things people don't say. When people are being interviewed and saying, no comment, no comment, and then after two days they suddenly go, OK, OK, I'll tell you everything. And I think... For God's sake, could you not have just held out one more day? <laughs> You'd have been fine. What's wrong with yeah. you? <laughs> maybe maybe he was told on the way to the interview room, we were picking up your girlfriend in half an hour. You don't start talking to us. But that, that, that version would no doubt be denied, but it could happen. There's usually a reason why people shift uh, that point of view. But look... Look, there was a there was a very uh, beloved colleague of ours called Eamon Leahy. I don't know if you remember Eamon. No, he I don't. died now a long time ago. He died very young of a heart attack, but he was a huge personality, and he was an amazing sense of humour. And we have you know those dotted throughout the profession, and they give everyone a lift, you know. But Eamon was also unbelievably bright, and you know he he was a few years ahead of us, so you know we all looked up to him and all that, but. You know, he said one day he saw some young barrister with the book of evidence and he says to the barrister who was just taking the book, he says, have you started from the back yet? And, you know, what that meant was the interviews are at the back. So, you know, have you got to that point where you just go and say, yeah, I did it? Or are you patiently waiting and going through the whole thing? And it was a real aim and comment, you know, and you could see from all perspectives, why he'd asked that question, which he was asking tongue-in-cheek, by the way. Uh, and, you know, that is the approach. Do you go to the back and say, yeah, I did it, and then read everything else, yeah. or, or or should you start at the front? I, I've always been a front man myself, uh, even though I, the suspense is usually fairly fake because I know what's coming by the way other things are unfolding, but I, I, I still prefer to read from the front. Do you ever get cases, Michael, where you, you turn them down and you think that um, either you're not the right person for it or there's something about the case that, you know, just doesn't gel with you? Uh, I, I, I could probably count on one hand those type of cases. Um, there are lots of cases that I get that I don't like. I don't like doing, but there is a fear that if you give in to that fear 
that, you know, that's going to be very damaging. And in fairness, I would say, it's the really hard cases are the ones you learn on, you know? It's, it's going out and doing a case, which is really, really difficult for a variety of reasons. It might be the case, it might be the consequences, it might be the, the nature of the, you know, some, some offenses are really mean, nasty the client could be difficult it might be a solicitor who will perhaps expect counsel to do more of the work you know you could have all of those things in a particular case quite often but my fear would be if i fear that case and i give in and don't do it i'll start fearing every case i mean there are cases sometimes you're in them and you can't do them because it's clashed with another case and you know there's a bit of relief but actually saying no no i don't think you can say no and you certainly can't say so without a good professional reason because we work on the cab rag system which is you take each case as it's offered you don't pick and choose so you know that would be instilled on us anyway so for all of those reasons you, you would turn down very few cases and you need a good objective reason. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can remember, uh, again, in a, in a previous life of mine when I was working in Glasgow, um, we weren't just pigeonholed as pathologists. We used to look at um, assaults, sexual assaults. And sometimes, you know, you'd be reading through the thing, the papers and thinking, oh, my God, this is awful. And the individual... But at the same time, I was thinking, well... You still have to have a valid case against somebody, you know, just because you don't like the person yeah. or you think what the, what has happened to another individual is heinous. You can't just say, well, they don't deserve to be represented and they don't deserve to the, the evidence to be scrutinised. And I'd always said to people is um, don't just accept the, fr- the forensic evidence, you know, do question it, and particularly the science in those days was very woolly. Um, nowadays, it's it's a it's more formate, formulaic in that they come in and they'll say, well, it's you know it's possible, it's probable, it's highly probable, and all the rest of it. In those days, it was just people just come in and it was you know whatever way the wind was blowing. Sometimes the way they would give evidence, and I say, no, you have to you have to dig down into this. Just because a scientist says something does not automatically make it true and correct. You have to you have to look at it. Well, I, I did come across a comment from an American lawyer who said, you know, the more heinous the offence, the greater the need for a lawyer. And in practice, I think that's very true. Yeah, I think it is. And because I think it's easy to if dismiss it's a, if, if it's an, If it's a really bad offence, <clears throat> people can get a bit lazy, not lazy, intellectually lazy. I mean, you fall into a particular mode and, uh, you know, if thing looks a particular way and it walks a particular way, you know, the quacks a particular way, it probably is because it is that way. But there are a number of instances um, where something looks a particular way and by the end it's completely inverted. And I always take the view, it's not for me to decide which ones are and which ones aren't. It's, you know, that's the, for the process to, uh, to unfold. And, you know, the, the one question, the only question I ever get asked uh, is, you know, how do you defend guilty people? And, you know, there's this line, well, how would I know they're guilty? Oh, come on, uh, you know, this and that. And, you know, the nearest you would come to it is that maybe some very prejudicial evidence would be excluded. And but for that exclusion, you know, the result would be inevitable. But 
you, what you've defended is the admissibility of that evidence as a technical argument, and then what is left of the case. Um, but, you know, there are, there are people, there are cases which start out a particular way, and in the end, they don't come on very often, but at the end, it is a little bit like that very romantic idea I used to have at the beginning. It was actually completely different to the way it all looked. And you approach every case on the basis it should have that potential. That's the only way you can do it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because bad people do bad things, but bad people can do good things, and good people can do bad things. And, you know, you can't really just judge a book by its cover. And, of course, it's the previous list of convictions. <laughs> so you have to be careful and not have your own innate prejudices and they influence how you treat pers- a person and a case. Do you ever... Get, do you ever keep in touch with these people afterwards? You know, it's not a case of they no. either, you know, everything's turned no, out well. No, not, not at all. Uh, hmm. The level, the, I would, I've often thought about this. And the way I would, the nature of the relationship, I would compare it a bit like this. If you've ever had a moment in, in your own existence where you needed medical treatment, and fortunately, I, I have had little or none of that, but enough to know the difference. You know, and someone comes along and does something for you. You, you sort of feel absurdly grateful that they've done that. Uh, and, you know, at the same time, if you met them a month or three months later, it would, you know, you wouldn't be going up and giving them a hug or anything. It would be slightly formal. And... I think it's a bit like that with a lawyer. You know, a case could last for two months or three months or a long time, and sometimes you develop an enormous level of empathy with the client and his family and all the rest of it. But if you bumped into them three or six months later, everyone would realize everyone had a role and they were doing a job. Now, there might have mm-hmm. a bit of affection because you'd have spent a long time with them, or there might yeah. have a bit of antipathy too, depending on mm-hmm. what the mix was. But... It would be rare. I can't think of any uh, persons at the moment that, you know, you'd be meeting. There'd be an odd time where, you know, I might, a solicitor, I get a call from a solicitor who would say, I have a young fellow's up on this and that, and, you know, his parents know you, because we'd have been in the same, you know, school or the same circles. And, you know, you'd do the case and you'd meet the parents and, and the client afterwards but and there might be a bit more there but it no it's a very it's it's a very professional thing it's not you wouldn't be taking anyone to dinner no i can well imagine i sometimes get letters though from prisoners (laughs) who've been a bit miffed (laughs) have you any pen pals in the prisons (laughs) no i do get letters but considering the volume of cases I think the, the you get far fewer letters than you, you would think, you know. I mean, I'd say I get maybe, I don't know, two, three letters a year. Um, I, I You know, considering what I've just, just the situation I've described, I'd expect there would be more people would pick up the pen and that. But uh, no, and sometimes I've, ha- I've had some lovely letters over the years, really, really nice letters. But generally, they're, they're, there's, they're, they're, bit left to centre. Some of them are a bit mad. Uh, but, you know, they, they're they there and I always I always make a point to reply to them. I would never I would never uh, 
I'd never not reply. And sometimes you do learn things from them. Do you think that people, um, having gone through the process, somebody's been charged with murder, they've gone through the process and you've defended them um, extremely well, of course, um, and they're found guilty, do you think they accept it with good grace or or do some of them still reign against the injustice of it all? I mean, how does does that go afterwards? I don't think there's any standard reply or there's any standard reaction. Um, you see, if you if you, you know yourself, if people go into a hospital and they have what's called you know a medical mishap, and you know they sometimes sue, and there's enormous in those type of cases, there can be a lot of anger towards the medical personnel. And you know this. I went in. I went into a hospital where I'm supposed to be made better, and this is what happened. And it has always struck me in that instance is that, of course, we want to avoid medical mishaps, and there's you know, not to be any tolerance of them. But hospitals are run by people, and people p- things that are run by people aren't perfect. And you know, there's going to be certain instances where people are, are not going to have a very bad experience at a hospital. And unfortunately, the courts are the same. It's all run by people. And we talk about justice. Justice is the verdict, no matter what it is. That's, that's, what, that's what justice is. And, you know, you can have a verdict that is harsh. You can have a verdict that's benign or generous to a particular accused. And you can have verdicts that are wrong. And, you know... A lot of people say, well, a lot of people are able to rationalize it better than I would. They sort of say, well, we we, we did our case and we did everything that we could and you did everything that you could and here's where we are and I'm stuck with it. But there are, of course, people who never, uh, it eats away at them and, you know, uh, for years and years and years and does enormous damage. And in, in some instances, they're managed to get back to court and get the verdict set aside, but there are a very small number of cases. But it's very traumatic for everyone. And this is why the lawyer needs the comfort of knowing, you know, anything that could have been done was done. Because you sleep very well at the end of that process, and you don't want that niggle that something could have been done that wasn't done. So that that's what keeps you motivated, I suppose. Yeah, I can understand that. I don't want to put it... <laughs> any ideas into anybody's head but can you sue your solicitor your barrister um because i know in in scotland they changed the law that was now that was a long time ago and there was a few cases that um i'd been involved in where um and 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 quite rightly too i think in one of the one of them in particular that i didn't think the guy was defended very well either because i was you know as a witness i was saying come on ask me some tricky questions here and I wasn't getting any and I thought no this 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 should be this should be quite hard on me because I'm saying a particular thing and I might not be right and even I agreed with the with the accused when when he sued him um have they got any any recourse in Ireland if they they don't particularly think that you performed extremely well on that particular occasion well, when I started out, you couldn't sue lawyers. Then you could sue them for bad paperwork. And I think you could probably sue them for bad court work as well now. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure about that. Um, but we have had, uh, in you know, we do get cases where there's a trial 
And afterwards, the accused complains that something wasn't done that should have been uh, most frequently. And there's a change in legal team and it goes before the Court of Appeal. And one of the arguments is that there wasn't competent representation. And at that point, the lawyers from the previous uh, outing have to be put on notice and all the allegations have to be spelled out and, and the court goes through them. But I think it's fair to say that the Court of Appeal, and this wouldn't be unique to Ireland, doesn't like these cases. I mean, they have an inbuilt resistance to them. And there's a sort of, I think, uh, an irrational fear that if they if they allow this as a as a you know a, 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 an area that where you can make this and get your conviction cost, everyone would be in doing it. So there's a resistance and frequently a hostility to it. But uh, the Supreme Court has recently given a big judgment in a case where you know the lawyers were filing affidavits and all that, and the Supreme Court said that that is to stop immediately. Um, the lawyers aren't a party to the case. They don't get any special uh, rights. And what happens is, if there's an issue, the prosecution calls the barrister or the solicitor as a witness in the appeal court, and they are cross-examined like every other witness. Um, so it, it is an area, uh, and it's probably an area that's a developing area. I mean, in America, it, the norm... I won't say the norm, but I believe it's very common that after a trial, you know, you bring in a new set of lawyers yes. and the first thing they do is go through the transcript and say, here's how, here's all the things that were done yeah. incorrectly. And over there, you know, it's it's a very joggy jog. Uh, it's not like that here, but we, we do have to bring those cases if you're instructed in them. And it's not pleasant, but uh, it's it's necessary. I have been in them myself. I have been on the receiving end of it, thankfully, but I have had to do my share of those cases where you make those complaints. A question I've been asked recently is, is there more violence in Ireland now? Are we seeing um, increased level of, of, of violence? I mean, my impression was that the, the murder rate stays much the same. Um I presume that number of assaults are increasing because from the pathologist's point of view, the cases seem much more complex than they used to be. Wasn't you know, you don't see the single stab wound so much anymore. It's multiple stab wounds, it's you know, gunshot injuries, it's a significant blood force trauma to the head. Um, very severe injuries that really there's no chance of survival. Whereas in the past these ones, the single stab wound now gets into hospital and two days later he's out, you know, on the bus to, to Ballymun or whatever he's off to again. Uh, are you, is that reflected in what the cases that you're seeing through the courts? I know, there's no doubt now that there's more violence and that the, the nature of the violence has changed. I mean, in the 60s in Ireland, the, the, the homicide cases were in single figures. In the mid-1980s, you know, it was kind of 2025. Now, the population has doubled since that time, so the numbers would naturally double. But I think the biggest year, it was like 120 or something. And I haven't looked up the statistics, but there's probably about 70 or 80 a year. So the numbers are up. And in, the, in those times, you know, it was normally a drunken fight. And uh, uh, d- domestic disputes 
could end up with with uh, uh, the woman being killed, and you know it was murder, and it, it was it was it was it wasn't uh, organised crime, it wasn't gangland stuff, um, it wasn't there was no money in crime in those days. Now there is some money for the people who are at the very higher echelons of it. Most most of the people who are actually out doing the 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 actual crimes are foot soldiers and they they don't have uh, anything more than the clothes on their back is the is the very very common profile but no there's a lot of gratuitous violence there's a lot of violence connected to dr- to the distribution of drugs um, so it's a changed society from that point of view and when I came in the average term the average time served for a life sentence was eight years the average time now, I think, is 18 and a half years. And because that average is calculated by reference to people released, it's not really a true average because the people who are in there really long term don't get factored into the statistics till they die or do get out. And for anyone who has been in a crime that didn't involve killing their friend after a huge amount of drink, and it was a what I would call a crime crime, where it was connected to carrying out other crimes you know they're probably looking at 25 30 years in, in doing in, in jail so yeah it's got it's become much more uh, much more elaborate and much more layered uh, in, in in days gone by it was it was a fight between two friends it was a drunken fight um, there, there were criminals they were violent but they didn't kill each other never mind people who who are on the yeah. periphery of things. I mean, um, you got a good sorting out. I mean, I mean, even in Northern Ireland, I mean, they went for the kneecaps rather than the head, but down south, I'm afraid they just go straight for the head and there's, you know, no great thought put into it. Uh, coming back to the court cases, though, um, I think I find is that having given evidence in Scotland, England and Ireland, um, I've seen the sort of the different approaches to the court cases. In Scotland, things were <laughs> pretty rapidly done and dusted coming through the courts. Um, and in England, they have a system whereby they they have these pre-trial meetings and a lot of the evidence is agreed. Whereas in Ireland, everything, you know, is... Whatever's there is, 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 is read out in court. It's heard in court. It's, do you think there's a way of maybe shortening trials or having... Um, again, pre-trial meetings where certain evidence could be agreed because very often I think I'm standing up here stating the bleeding obvious, you know. We all know that he was either shot or he was stabbed and it bears, it's going to bear no relation to the rest of the evidence because it's usually a case of, well, it wasn't me and I, if I didn't do it, didn't mean it. Um, so is there a way, do you think there's a way forward? I mean, I know this is probably something that um, a lot of you would argue again. Well, there, there is... There is a lot of evidence that is agreed. It, it, there, there is a lot of evidence that is agreed. It tends to be agreed on the day rather than in advance, uh, because people don't apply their minds. I'm, I'm sure they could be trained to change that. So there is a lot agreed. In in patholo- with the pathologist, the prosecution I think have a preference to call the evidence even when it's not controversial, because it's a reminder to everybody that this is a real person that's died and it humanizes the situation and 
you know, one of the things that always strikes me is when the pathologist gets up and gives evidence, you know, even though it's, you know, a stab or a shot or gun or some class of an assault, there's like 78 bruises on the body. And I'm sort of sitting there saying, if I die today, are there going to be 74 bruises on my body? I don't know. But it, it can it can paint a very graphic picture. And uh, it's 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 very valuable evidence in the prosecution point of view. And I could never see them just having a barrister, you know, send anyone to sleep by just reading it out. Um, one of the one of the big failures in the system, and it, it needs overhaul, and there's been a bill, if not an act, uh, been before the trial a few times, where, you know, all this these tri- these legal issues that take a week, two, three weeks, the jury sent home and brought back and in and out. Um, that could be uh, that could be done in advance. At least you wouldn't have the jury hanging around for days or weeks on end. And that is going to happen if it hasn't already uh, happened. But that yeah. that's imminent. Yeah, because I always find that quite irritating. I can't imagine what the jurors are thinking because you know it's their, their big moment getting involved in particularly a murder trial, and all of a sudden you know they're sitting in a back room with a cup of tea for you know sort of four days. Well. I don't know what you're arguing about, but it's obviously something very important. Yeah. Has <laughs> great bearing on what's going to happen, but yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, especially if they come back and, you know, the case was supposed to take another two weeks and it takes a day and a half, you know, it doesn't, you sort of forensically work out there's a big chunk of this has been taken away. Uh, but uh, I, I suppose the lawyers, they don't like things to change. You know, they like everything to be the same. And there is a slight sort of, Again, I think this is an irrational fear, but within the context of the trial, the judge has a better sense of it than he would if you parked it away six months before the case came to trial. But the judges will say, look, we're, we, we're doing this day in, day out. It doesn't actually make any difference to us whether it's in the middle of the trial or six months. We bring the same level of impartiality and detachment one way or the other. Yeah. And that probably is true. Off on a slightly different tack, though. Um, you did make a foray back into writing again and uh, produced a, a novel. You went back into fiction. You left the, the gritty world, the I gritty did, world yeah. of factual crime, into the gritty world of fictional crime. How did you find that experience coming back to your your writing mm. background after all those years? You the the advantage you have over. So a, a lot of other people is you, your mind is trained to, you know, personalize everything. You're, you're, you're a good researcher. You're good at whatever material you have. You're good at laying it out. But, you know, the journalist and probably also the lawyer, it's all about sort of telling things, whereas the fiction has to tell itself. And, you know, it's much more subtle. And that, that, took me a long time is all I can say but I enjoyed it you know, I enjoyed it but it drove me mad as well yeah I did enjoy it, it was a, there was a lot of hours <laughs> to put like that and you know writing is a bit like the bar except at the bar if you get going at all you'll earn money you know writers do not earn money and I was complaining earlier that you know certain certain good barristers don't get through but you know, you go into a bookshop and, you know, there are a lot of pretty awful books that get through. 
and uh, if you're if you are a writer I mean I was doing it as something that was secondary but if you're a writer and you you know if you can get part a writer's insecurity but you actually know your work is better than a lot of other stuff and you know your stuff is being submitted and it depends purely on whoever the commissioning editor is and whatever the whatever the you know the, the the big thing they're chasing at the moment is whatever is in fashion and you know it's it, it is it is very frustrating it's 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 very it's very uh what's the word i'm looking for it's very random you know uh as to a certain book might take 50 publishers and then the 51st look likes it and it actually goes out and sells really well and the only lesson from they learn from that is well let's try and find the exact book like that that we can, mm. you know, it's, it's, there's a great lacking of imagination. In I think that's true, and, and I agree with you. I mean, you go into a bookshop sometimes, and it's quite overwhelming when you see the number of books of certain genre, and you think, well, why is that one, you know, sitting on the front table, you know, piled high, whereas you know, they've got one or two copies hidden at the back, you know, in, in alphabetical order, and <laughs> you're sort of going through and going, oh, that looks interesting, or, oh, no, I don't find well, pass on that one. So are you going to try again? Are you going to have another foray into it? Oh, Good. I have. I have. I have written another book. And, and you know, you're, you're getting some of my frustration because the agent has been trying to sell it now <laughs> for uh, a long time. And, uh, you know, he, he's quite enthused about it, but he, he hasn't got it across the line. But look, look, I'm fortunate. I'm at a stage in my life where I'm not going to wake up in the middle of the night worrying or, or being preoccupied. I've had a very good life and you know getting books published is a bonus and you know it's not it's not going to get in on me if it isn't uh, it would be different if it was 20 years ago or it was you know a different stage in my life I would very much have been you know totally absorbed in all that I'm I'm I'm, I'm like to think I'm still absorbed in the writing of it but it doesn't it's not it's not it's not it's not as important as it would have been at a different stage so I'm 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 not. I'm better. I'm. I'm. I'm better able to look at it, and and see it for what it is, and and not take yeah. it personally. Do you ever do you ever worry that somebody will be reading the book and thinking, does that refer to a case that happened in 1999 or something that you know? I can remember a case going through the courts in 2011 that sounded very like that. No, <laughs> I, I didn't actually. Um, I mean, there are there are some events in it, which are actual events. You know, but what I think what you discover in, what you discover in fiction very quickly is that there are things that you think would would fit into a story, and in your head, they, that's a natural fit. But when you actually try to put it in, it doesn't fit at all, or doesn't fit well, or normally it's only just a little aspect of it, and that's that's part of the craft of, of writing. So you see, if if you're trying to reproduce something. You're just you're doing a documentary, and documentaries have a, have a great value. But documentaries is trying to mirror, to to recreate the reality of some event that you're documenting. And in writing fiction, you're not trying to do that. It might be based on some real events, but what you're trying to do is to tell a story that maybe maybe tells a bigger story but you're, you're not reproducing something that happened so i have no interest in that and i would try i try to work my imagination uh, on that ra- rather than drawing on 
particular events that had gone previously. Well, the lesson learned is keep the facts for court and the fiction for <laughs> your home time when you're when you're when you're relaxing at home. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. I mean, we could go on forever, but I know that your time is precious and that uh, you want to get back to, to life outside of this. So thank you so much for coming and joining us today. And lovely to see you. Glad you're alive and well. And I may see you back in Dublin one of these days. I, I hope so. Th- thank you very much for having me. It was a great pleasure. You've been listening to Life and Death with me, Dr. Maddie Cassidy. This podcast is brought to you by Go Loud, produced by Jason Ford and Rosie Putnam from Mabel Productions, edited by Rosie, and with music by Sasha Putnam, presented by me and Paul Carson. Next week, we'll be talking to Kira Staunton, a criminal psychologist. If you wonder who commits the crimes and why, she's the woman to ask.